thanks and praise, and thank you for the word we will hear this morning, and we receive it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for your giving. Thank you for your generosity. Uh, what you give gives us the ability to continue to reach Kalamazoo and around the world. Uh, welcome to our 11th marriage series in 13 years. This, I think, is marriage message number 44 or 45, um, which doesn't seem like a lot in uh, 13 years, but I've got pastor friends who've never done a marriage series ever, for which I yell at them. I'm passionate about marriage, and I think everybody, if you're married, I think you should be. If you're not married, I still think you should be at least passionate about people getting healthier in their relationships. If you're a teenager, uh, statistics tell us you most likely will get married. And uh, I used to have teenagers kind of grown because uh, what we did, we did every year for our, um, our youth group, we did LSD, which stood for love, sex, and dating. I don't know what you were thinking in that moment. Um, love, sex, and dating, or they just called it sex month is what they called it. And every once in a while, we still get notes from former students that are married that says, I'm still, I still look back, I still remember. This is important to teach on because this was important for the scriptures. And so something that we are doing this month is we are actually going to give away some free dates to Chick-fil-A. So unfortunately, those dates can't take place on Sundays. So... You're going to have to fast from chicken until you get to Monday. But in front of you is a QR code on the back of the seats. And so what we're going to ask you to do is each week of the series, we're going to ask that you come in and scan that. And you're going to get a short questionnaire, like three questions. And I believe the questions are different every single week. And by the time we get to the end of the service, uh, what one of our pastors is doing, Pastor Marty, so you know who to pay off now, Pastor Marty is going to be up in the sound booth, and he is going to be choosing these quizzes or these submissions at random and sending them to Jeff, and Jeff will announce at the end of the service the three couples that win a gift card to Chick-fil-A to go and enjoy. So if your spouse is maybe serving in kids' church today, and you win it, you get to just take the credit. Let me take you to Chick-fil-A tomorrow, and you get to come out like an absolute hero. Um, while you're doing that, if you have never uh, signed up or subscribed to Marriage Monday, I do a podcast. I don't know if you know this. I do a marriage podcast every, almost every Monday, I should say. Now, I do a live one on Facebook, but most of the time, I, I believe nobody really wants to look at this whatsoever. And so I, I say go onto the podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts. You can look up Marriage Monday, David Berenger. It's about eight to ten minutes of just marriage thoughts. And, uh, and, I, and it just gives us a chance to get some enrichment and some um, practicality into your marriage. If you have your Bibles, we're going to spend most of the month referring back to Genesis chapter 2 and 3, but we're going to start in Matthew chapter 19 and then make our way to Genesis. It sounds a little backwards, doesn't it? But we're going to do a little bit of a study about marriage, because uh, if you don't know this, then you need to write this down. Marriage never drifts into health. Marriage never drifts into health. We must purposely steer our marriage toward health. We have to be strategic. In fact, I've had people talk about good marriages and bad marriages, but I don't think there are good marriages and bad marriages. Why don't I believe that? Because when people say, well, I've got a bad marriage, the title bad marriage is so generalized that you could have had a bad week and you have a bad marriage. And you're going to have that all the way to issues of abuse and everything in between. And so I don't like saying that we've got good marriages and bad marriages because many times when people say I've got a bad marriage, they give up on that bad marriage. And so my challenge is this. There are two types of marriages. There are marriages that work on their marriage and marriages that don't. 
That's it. Marriages that work on it, marriages that don't. And my heart this month is that we would go back to Eden. That we would go back to the beginning and reclaim that which God has set up. Because unfortunately, we have all been privy to, whether it's our, ideolo- our ideologies, our thoughts, feelings about marriage. We've had so many things get dropped on our plate and we're wondering, what is marriage supposed to look like? The reason why this thing popped up in my head, kind of came to my, the forefront of my brain when talking about marriage ministry, because I feel this is how we have treated what the culture has handed us regarding marriage. It shows up, it's here, it's in front of us, and so whatever culture hands us, we automatically consume it without asking a single question. And quite often we chase whatever is popular in the culture. And I've had people say, well, Pastor Dave, this is what culture says. This is what culture dictates. And my question is, why does our culture in America get to dictate something that other cultures don't get to dictate? And we are following culture instead of, honestly, us as believers, we should be establishing culture. And there is a kingdom culture that I want to see reestablished in the heart of our city. And it's the heart that God has for marriage that we don't take what somebody's handed, that we don't get delivered what somebody says, this is what you ought to believe because this is what fits best and makes everybody happy. Listen, I'm just gonna tell you, if you wanna make everybody happy, go sell ice cream. Until you find a person that can't have dairy, then you're gonna make somebody bad. So there's nothing you can do that's gonna make everybody happy, but unfortunately with this area of marriage, it's one of those hot button issues that has been a hot button issue for hundreds of years. Let me give you proof. Matthew chapter 19, we've got this awesome interaction. We've got these Pharisees. If you don't know who the Pharisees are in the scriptures, the Pharisees were the religious elite. These were the teachers. These were the pastors. These were those that ran the temple, ran the church, and they oftentimes were trying to get Jesus into trouble. They wanted to stir up people. They wanted Jesus to voice an opinion that would fracture society, that would get people to get mad at him, get the Romans to kill him. And they were getting him, trying to get him into another situation. And so Matthew 19, verse 1 says, Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, and he's talking about the previous chapter, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judah beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Verse 3, And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, we're going to pause right there. I purposely put that in red, and I underlined that because... Most of us have read, if we've read this scripture, we're like, okay, the Pharisees are getting Jesus' take on whether he agrees or not with divorce. That's actually not what exactly they're doing. It is, but it isn't. And so the key words that you need to see are the ones that we've put in red and we've underlined. They said, what is your take on divorce? Where do you fall? And can you divorce somebody for any cause? The reason why this is here, this actually goes back to the book of Deuteronomy. Because in Deuteronomy chapter, I believe it's chapter 24, verse 1, Moses begins to talk about how, how, how a certificate of divorce can be released. In fact, it says this. It says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he writes her a certificate of divorce. Now, the key words there is, if he finds something indecent about her. The Hebrew is the Hebrew words, ervat devar. And that word, those words, uh, arvet devar are very peculiar because they're hard to, it's hard to interpret that. 
And so English, we write the words for any cause or something indecent. And throughout the, those ages, those times where rabbis were beginning to digest the scripture, they begin to argue about what that meant. What does it mean, something indecent? There was a rabbi who began to teach. His name was Shimei. Shimei taught that that really meant adultery. That if you commit adultery, that was what most of us talk about. That was the indecent thing. That is the most indecent thing you could do to your marriage. It will break the back of your marriage. It will destroy your marriage. And that's what, so he began to teach it. But unfortunately, in Jesus' day, where we think divorce is more of a modern concept, it was running rampant in Jesus' day. And so the concept of Shimei was if it is an adultery situation, you don't have to divorce, but you now have permission to divorce. But then another rabbi came onto the scene named Hillel, and he taught, he taught something different. He said those words, something indecent, is actually opened up a lot more. And you can go back and study some of the words of Hillel, who said things like, if she talks back to you, you can divorce her. If she gains weight, divorce her. If she talks out of turn, divorce her. In fact, there's one that says, if she, is, if she burns the bread, if she burns toast, divorce her. Some of you burnt bread this morning and you're nervous. Some of you made a bad batch of coffee this morning and you are nervous. And so look at this. The Pharisees came to him and tested him by saying, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? In other words, Jesus, which camp? Shimei or Hillel? Which camp are you falling into? And I love Jesus' response. Jesus says this, have you not read that he created them from the beginning to be male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Some of you are thinking, Jesus didn't answer the question, but, you, but can we kind of translate this to modern times? They said, whose camp do you fall in when it comes to divorce? And Jesus says, you're asking the wrong question. What you should be asking is, what is God's heart and design for marriage? That's what he's asking. He's like, you've missed the point. They're trying to corner him, saying, what's your stance on divorce? And Jesus says, whoa, whoa, pull back and ask the better question. What is God's stance? What is God's dream for marriage? And so Jesus, to answer that question, he goes all the way back to the beginning of everything. And he quotes the book of Genesis. And he wants to bring them back. Uh, so Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Let me pause right there. That word helper does not mean servant. Ladies, say amen. That word helper does not mean subordinate. Ladies, say amen. In the Hebrew, this is what's so cool. In the Hebrew, the Hebrew word for that word helper means somebody given to help a task for which if that person wasn't present, it would be impossible. God gave a helper to man because you recognize that with this thing of marriage and the calling of marriage, it cannot be done with one misogynistic person leading the way. 
It's got to be done when the two come together and they become one. I can get off on that rant for a while. i got to stop here. Verse 19. Now out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. I've got a lot of questions right there. Why Pilatipus? I do not know. And the man gave name to all the livestock, to the birds in the heavens, to every beast in the field. But Adam um, there was not a helper suited for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up the place with flesh, and the rib the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, now you notice how it says in quotes in your Bible, some of you, it, it, not just in quotes, but it's kind of dropped down and condensed together. Do you know why? Because he's either saying a poem or he is singing. The very first words out of a human being's mouth in Scripture is a song. So the next time your wife tells you to stop singing in the shower, tell them, this is what God made me to do. And he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken out of the man. He is singing over his wife. And immediately, verse 24, this is now Adam talking. God jumps into the song. The man is literally collaborating with God. They're doing a mix together. Verse 24, God says, Therefore a man shall leave in his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife, they were both naked and unashamed. They were naked and not ashamed. My goal is for you, by the end of the series, to be naked and unashamed. We will talk through the weeks about what that means. In fact, on Father's Day, I'm preaching on sexuality on Father's Day. I believe that God wants to give you married couples the greatest sex lives you've ever had. Three amens and a couple claps. That was stinking lame. Some of y'all need to go home, put the kids down for a nap, and fellowship. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Those words, those words right there was the marriage ceremony over these two people. They were separate, and right there, God speaks over them, brings them together as one. And in that moment, God created marriage. Let me emphasize it. God created marriage. Marriage did not get made up in Mesopotamia 10,000 years ago as a way to deal with civic litigation. Marriage was made from the beginning and actually put within our DNA so much that you can go to any culture around this world and find marriage. Any and every culture. We did not invent this. This is not our idea. This is God's idea. Love is God's idea. Romance is God's idea. For you people that feel awkward in church talking about sex, I'm just going to tell you, sex is God's idea. And when you married couples have sex, God is not wringing his hands saying, oh, are they doing it again? <laughs> he blesses it. and says, go for it. Enjoy. Some of you that are visiting, you're like, I might like this guy a little bit better right now. God created marriage. In fact, I'll say it this way. Marriage is a product of creation, not culture. It is a product of creation. God put it in our DNA. Does that mean that every single soul is going to get married? Not at all. I've got friends who have been single their whole lives and they feel that's been their calling. 
But God has put it in our DNA that we are a people of community. God says, let us make man in our own image. He says that in, the, in Genesis. And what is he saying? It's the Trinity saying, we're going to make out of community, make humanity to be in community. And if God produced marriage, that means we need to lean into his hymns because he knows how it functions. He knows how it's supposed to work. He knows what it's supposed to look like. He knows how we're supposed to act like. And somewhere along the line, we have lost the view of how God created marriage. Man and woman coming together for life. Man and woman coming together to join. Man and woman coming together to procreate, to populate and to dominate the earth. That word, the word dominate and subdue in the original Hebrew language, it doesn't mean to own everything. It means to take the raw materials and to produce what God has designed. And we've got this amazing song. I mean, this is where, like, I mean, I'm reading through uh, Genesis. I don't know, do you ever read with the idea of music in the background? I'm reading Genesis chapter 2, and for some reason, the, the, the theme of Jurassic Park is in my head. Da, 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 da. So we've got all sorts of things taking place. But when you get to chapter 3, the tone changes. Minor chords are hit. Verse 1, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you surely, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Understand that what God wants to build up, the serpent tries to tear down. What God tries to free, the serpent tries to imprison. And what God tries to create, the serpent tries to manipulate. We said this last week. God and God alone can only create. And all the devil can do is manipulate because that's his way of creating. Whatever God has brought you into, God wants to build something and because the devil can't create, he will try to manipulate it to be whatever image he can make it into so that you do not reflect the image that God wants you to do. And all it took was a lie. What was the lie? What was the deception? What did the devil say to Eve? He basically said, listen, God doesn't really love you. God can't be trusted. That God's way isn't the right way. That we know better than God and so we can make bigger decisions and better decisions for us. And what happened is humanity bought the lie and the love story turns into a tragedy. And the very first place that we see sin wreak havoc is marriage. The very first place we see sin break something up, it's exactly in the first marriage. How does it work? What did sin do? Verse 6. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate it and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Look at they sewed fig leaves together. Let me, let me give you a very deep theological thought here. Sin will make you stupid. 
because fig leaves are like the itchiest leaves imaginable. What do, you not, what do you not want to put on your genitals? Fig leaves. They bought the lie. They bought the lie. And they began to sew everything together. And they heard the sound of God walking through the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, to the man saying, where are you? Now listen, God did not lose them like a pair of socks. This was a rhetorical question. This is like playing hide-and-go-seek with your kid, and your kid is hiding behind a pole. Where is he? Where is she at? God knew exactly where they are at, and God calls out to them, and then he said, Adam said, I heard you at the sound of the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman you gave me If you've ever blamed God, you're not the first. The woman you gave me to be with, she gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, what is it that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. How did the enemy attack the first marriage? I'm going give to give it to you in one simple word. The word is blame. How often have we allowed the devil to fracture our marriages with that simple word? God's desire for your life is oneness. But this is where the enemy uses a crowbar called blame to break apart oneness and to change our heart with what we're really, truly after. Blame is something that I don't think I've ever preached on in my life. But it's something that, that I think leapt off the page in the book of Genesis. Sin came into the picture. Sin, enter, sin entered. And the first thing we see it attack is attacking the marriage through the issue of blame. Let me show you how blame works. I'm going to show you the cycle of blame. We have blame. Blame leads to fear. Fear then causes us to cover up. And then from covering up, all of a sudden we begin to live off of bad information. What type of bad information? Many times we cover up and we begin to look at other people, compare, and then look at them. And we begin to think, well, well, they've got it worse than me. I don't have to correct things. Or we begin to blame other people. And then we start living off of bad information that says, well, I'm bad, but other people are worse, so I don't have to change. So we live off of bad information, which, live, which grows into poor problem solving, which creates more errors, which creates more blame. And we get into a cycle of blame that goes on and on and on and until we say stop no more the blame cycle will wreak havoc on our marriages and will break you apart till there is nothing left this is blame you cannot blame your way to a better marriage you cannot blame your spouse into living better or let's say it the way we should say we can't blame our spouse into living more the way we want them to live see we want to blame we want to point the finger but we don't want responsibility. We are blaming, thinking it's not my fault, it's somebody else's fault because if you're right, if you're the one that's right, then you don't have to take any responsibility. I'll tell you what, I was great early in our marriage. I was phenomenal at shifting the blame upon Anne because if I can put blame, then I don't have to take responsibility and she does. After a couple years of that, this is where the Holy Spirit had to convict me because this is something that I've seen prevalent in my side of the family. We want to talk about things being passed down. We are good at blaming somebody else. 
We're good at pointing the finger. If you don't think we as humanity are good at pointing the finger, then you need to get a Twitter account and a Facebook account and you're going to see we live in a blame culture. Because if I could point the finger at somebody else, I don't have to deal with it myself. I want to show you Galatians chapter, chapter 6, verse 5. I want to read to you in the message paraphrase. This is so good. So look at what it says. Make careful exploration of who you are and the work that you've been given and sink yourself into that. Don't be impressed with yourself. Don't compare yourself with others. Each of you must take responsibility for doing the creative best with your own life. That's so good. But let me show you how most of us read it. Go to the next slide. Make a careful exploration of others and the work they have been given. Then sink yourself into that. Look at other people. Look at what they're doing. Look at what they're accomplishing and sink yourself into that. We are so busy sinking ourselves into what other people are doing wrong. And in the context of what we're doing, I mean, we could talk about this with any relationship, with any work relationship, any other issue. But let's talk about marriage. Is that often, instead of dealing with ourselves and, and looking on the inside and doing what Psalm chapter 139 says, search my heart, God. We like to say, search our spouse's heart. They got to be more wrong than I am. Can make a careful exploration of others and what they've been given, and then sink yourself into that. What is Paul trying to say? He's trying to tell us that bypassing internal real, uh, responsibility leads to external liability in our relationships. Bypassing the internal responsibility leads to external liability in our marriage. Paul's trying to get our attention. Stop throwing the blame and look on the inside. What does the rest of the message paraphrase say? Don't be impressed with yourself. Don't be impressed with yourself. Stop comparing yourself. Each one of you must take responsibility for the, do, for the creative best you can do with your own life. What is he saying? Stop being caught up with you. Stop making life about you. What is life about? What is marriage about? It's about Jesus and serving others. It's about Jesus. You want a healthier life. This is your takeaway for the whole month. Make Jesus the center of your marriage and serve your spouse the way that Jesus served the church. You live in that spot and you've got a spouse that lives in that spot. You have got a recipe for a very healthy marriage. Because that's what causes us to come into oneness. But the problem is, is we're so busy examining other people and the reality is we're not examining them to necessarily correct them for what they're doing wrong. We want to simply correct them to make them more like us. And blame happens when we forget that oneness is the goal. But instead, we make the goal sameness. Blame happens when all of a sudden we shift in the goal of our marriage. Instead of being one, the two becoming one, we shift into a blame mode because we don't want the two to become one. We want the two people to think like one person. Because blame believes that the reason things are unhealthy is the person that I am with needs to be more like me. And if they were more like me, then things in our marriage would finally be right. They have to think like me. Their personality, personality has to be the same as me. They have to think about their finances exactly like me, save like me, spend like me, uh, put the toilet paper on like me. Now, well, let's be real. There is only one way to do it. Jesus believes in beards and not mullets. Does that make sense? So you do need to think like that. 
But when we're bent on sameness in marriage, what ends up happening is this, is we miss the giftings and perspectives that our spouse has been given. My spouse and I are so different, Pastor Dave. Praise God. Because if you're both the same, then one of you is no longer necessary. Somebody's having fellowship after church. God's goal is oneness. But I wonder if we are causing tragedy and travesty to our marriages because instead of becoming one, we're dominating. And we throw blame. If you were just more like me. Things are wrong because you're not like me. I would venture to say that things are wrong because you both need to be like Jesus. And not worried about being like one another. And this issue of blame, it has been in a megaphone since the beginning of time. It is the very first response to a marital issue. What was the marriage issue? I believe the marriage issue was communication. Because the scripture says that God told the man the instruction about the garden. And it seems like the man did not communicate what God told him. So anybody that's ever had your husband blame you, well, you guys ate the fruit. I actually throw that out often in my marriage. My wife just ignores that altogether. Then you need to just say, well, man didn't communicate. Grow up. The idea is oneness. There is blame from the beginning, and God has called us into oneness. Could you imagine? Could you imagine in the book of Genesis chapter 3 that when they figured out that they were naked, when they figured out something was wrong, could you imagine the difference of the atmosphere of that place? That if man would have just said, you know what? I'll take the blame because I was the one that should have communicated. Could you imagine if he would have said that? I believe Eve would have dropped the fig leaves. Not in a weird way. Not even in a sexual way. Do you know why she hid? She felt shame because blame was being tossed. Her security was threatened and she's trying to clothe herself and to protect herself. And why she kept covered up? Because she didn't feel safe with him any longer. Imagine if her response would have been, you know what? I had an inappropriate conversation with somebody I should not have even talked to or even listened to. Adam would have dropped the fig leaf. Why? Because intimacy would have been restored. And what robbed intimacy? Blame. What robbed oneness? Blame. And when we shift from blame and saveness to, humi to humility and oneness, what happens? What happens when you shift into humility? What happens when you go after oneness is you begin to see opportunities instead of obstacles in your marriage. You begin to see an ally in your spouse where you once looked at them and they were the adversary in your marriage. You begin to look at, you begin to see light where blame wanted you to see nothing but darkness. God begins to shift your vision when you stop blaming, you stop going after sameness and you start saying, God has called us to be one. How can we be one together? I love what Romans chapter two, verse one through four says in the message paraphrase. That those people who are in dark spiral downward but if you think that leaves you on the high ground where you can point the fingers at others, think again. Every time you criticize somebody, you condemn yourself. It takes one to know one. Let that sink down. Judgmental criticism of others is a well-known way of escaping detection in your own crimes and misdemeanors. But God isn't so easily diverted. He sees right through all such smoke and screens and holds you to what you have done. God sees through the blame. Blame is, 
It's a smoke bomb. It's a smoke screen. There to try to cover up our own faults. Paul goes on to say, you didn't think, did you, that just by pointing your finger at others, you could distract God from seeing all of your misdoings and, and from coming down on you hard? Or did you think that because he's such a nice God, he would let you off the hook? Better think this one through from the beginning. God is kind, but he's not soft. In his kindness, he takes us firmly by the hand and leads us into a radical life change. If my keyboardist could join me, I love those words. God is kind, but he's not soft. God is kind, but he's not soft. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, is a beautiful, if you've never bought that for your children, buy that for your kids. Then watch the movie. It's, it, it's a fun family moment. And the kids are asking Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about Aslan, the lion, who is the picture of Jesus. And they ask, is, he's a lion. Is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, oh, he's not safe. But he's good. Why isn't he safe? Because when it comes to God, he's, he's kind. But the scripture says that his kindness leads us to repentance. That his kindness doesn't mean that he's soft on sin. He confronts us with our sinful ways. And so when we want to blame other people, and listen, we all do our share of the blame. It's the preacher's fault. I've gotten that blame before. It's my spouse's fault. It's the government's fault. It's CNN, it's Fox News' fault. It's Facebook's fault. It's this person's fault. Listen, God looks though through all the smoke screens of your blame. I'm not just here to say that other people are not at fault for things that they have done. But some of us need to start pointing the fingers and look inside and say, God, search our heart. Because oftentimes we throw blame because we don't want to deal with ourselves. And we'll throw blame on our spouse because we don't want to deal with ourselves. We want to see them change. So if they take responsibility, then I don't have to take responsibility. God wants to shift us. You see, blame is committing to you avoiding where healthy responsibility welcomes healthy acceptance. Blame gets stuck in judgment, holding a critical spirit, but healthy responsibility gets curious about what God might be inviting you into. Blame loves comparison, but healthy responsibility creates connection and intimacy and wholeness in relationships. Blame is always selfish, but healthy responsibility leads us into self-awareness and healthy selflessness. It's time that, God, that we respond to God's call of repentance. And I don't know what repentance looks like to you today. Maybe you have been running from God. I'm here to tell you that God is kind. But he's not soft. And what that means is if we can lean into his kindness. And the idea that he's not soft doesn't mean that he hits us with judgment, but it does confront us to check our hearts. This is what God was asking in the garden to this first marriage. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Who gave you information? Who invited you into something? Whose invitation did you accept? And listen, before we point the blame at Adam and Eve and say, how stupid were they? Let me just say, Adam and Eve is all of us. All of us. 
accepting invitations by culture, invitations by this and that, invitations by media saying, this is how we ought to look at things, rather than getting back and saying, God, this is what you gave us. How can we get back to that? And I'm here to say this, that great spouses don't perpetuate blame. Great spouses take responsibility. You want your marriage healthier? Take responsibility now. Stop with the blame. Set the blame aside. Some of you need to take a walk this afternoon and have a time of repentance. What does repentance mean? It means that I decide to go the other direction. Now, when you're going to walk, I'm not saying go a different direction than your spouse. That's not what I'm saying. But some of you need to sit with your spouse or walk with your spouse, and this is what I invite you to do. Is if you know that you have been utilizing or abusing the issue of blame in your marriage, I would invite you to repent with your spouse to, be, to actually admit, this is the area that I have been blaming you for, and that has been wrong on my part. Pastor, what's going to happen? The fig leaves fall. The defenses fall. It doesn't fix everything right away, but you know what it does? It puts your feet back on the track to follow what God has set up for your marriage. I promise you, get rid of the blame and watch the leaves fall. God will restore that which he has designed for your relationship. There's three practical tips I want to give you. This is going to be your project for this week, and then I'm going to shut up and let Jeff come give you some chicken. Three practical tips that I just want to help you work on your disconnect this week. Talk to each other. Number one, talk to each other beyond how is your day. Many times people blame the other people because there's so much mystery. There's such a lack of information because if you don't know the whole story, you begin to toss out blame. But what if we talk to each other beyond elevator talk? Do you know what elevator talk is? It's trying to take up the silence for the 30 seconds between floors. How is the weather? Is it going to rain? Okay, we'll see you later. Talk to each other. Invite each other into each other's day. Number two, eat something together. This may sound maybe overly elementary and practical, but we have couples that don't break bread together any longer. Or they don't date each other. Go out on a stinking date. How often should we do it? You should be dating at least once a month. At least. Have somebody watch the kids. Pastor, we don't have anybody. I promise you, we've got a staff that would help watch your kids. Ann and I have done that for people. We are foster respite care workers to help people have dates because we believe that foster parents deserve dates, perhaps more than most. Eat together. Break bread. In the book of Revelations, there's a church that fell out of love with God. What did God say? Go back and do the things that you did once before. How did you win your spouse's heart? You went out and you ate together. You spent time together. Go enjoy. And number three, create a daily ritual. I don't know what that looks like. Maybe it's getting together at some point in the evening just to debrief your day and just to be on the same page before the next day. Maybe it's taking a walk through the neighborhood. Even though you're enjoying the June snowfall, we call that pollen. <laughs> Create a daily ritual where you text each other randomly just to say the words, I love you. Well, Pastor Dave, she already knows how I feel. Bro, if you want the fig leaves to come down, the texts need to go up. 
communicate. Daily rituals. And this week, go after it. Go put these three into practice. I'm not telling you it will fix your marriage by the time you get to next Sunday. But I promise your feet will be on feet, feet headed toward Eden. You want to know what the word Eden means in Hebrew? It means delight. I want to get your feet back on the road to delight. And the way we do it is we chase oneness. Bow your heads. I'm done yakking.